Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Not Safe for Wonks. It's another beautiful day in the neighborhood here, and we are just so excited to talk about the subject of housing, which is kind of this weird topic in America. Housing and homelessness hasn't really improved in the country in a long time. There's been a lot of losses in terms of affordable housing, public housing, and uh, the whole concept has been sort of maligned. And if you go around and jump from news network to news network right now, you could find a dozen political talking heads and nonprofit groups and people saying, we have to fight the homelessness problem, and then nothing ever gets done. So what is that block that stands between the fact that this problem seems relatively solvable, and we'll get more into that, and the fact that it's not getting solved year after year, and furthermore, it doesn't even seem to be improving. So anyway, that's where we are today. I'm Kennedy Cooper. I'm Brandon Buchanan. I'm Rachel Kahn. And joining us today, we have friend of the show, Rebecca Parson, candidate for Washington's 6th District, and just all around great person. If you haven't listened to her original interview, go back and do it today. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me back. I'm excited to be here with the Wonk. Uh, th this is like, I mean, we were just super excited to, to get you back on. And I remember the New Year's episode, which hopefully you've never listened to. Hopefully you're too busy. But we were just talking about like how doing the interview with you really showed people that we like knew what we were doing. <laughs> and we've gotten <laughs> the getting the boulder over the hill. And like, we interact with you so much on Twitter. It's practically like you're, and also the Twitter is much more popular than the podcast is. So I feel like, um, <laughs> It really is. Like, people don't even know we do a podcast. So I feel like we've interacted and it's like you've never left uh, in space. <laughs> Maybe that can be an honorary member. Wait, we do a podcast? I was joking earlier, actually, that you're the pod godmother and that if anything happens to all of us, we're giving the pod to you, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I can be your gay uh, fairy pod mother. <laughs> Oh, gay fairy pod mother was the phrase that I needed today. <laughs> um, yeah, between that and and us repeatedly talking about replacing one of the hosts with Chris Armitage, um, <laughs> we're, we're not long That's for great. this world. <laughs> have you met Chris? Yeah, I have uh, a bunch of times. He's great. He lives on the other side of the state, but he, whenever he's in Seattle, or we were also just at an Our Revolution event in Olympia, which is about 45 minutes south of me. So we see each other, I don't know, probably ends up being about once a month. And uh, he's awesome. He's really funny and has great policies, fellow brand new Congress slate member. So how is Evergreen State doing? Good. Um, I mean, we've got... I mean, in terms of candidates, like we've got candidates running in probably, I think, five different uh, races right now, which is really exciting. It's interesting because I think, you know, before I lived in Washington state, I thought of it as a very progressive state. I think that's how people view it. And it is pretty progressive, but we have, we only have out of our entire congressional delegation, one progressive, and that's Pramila Jayapal. And then we have these other districts that are very safely blue, and we have these corporate Dems in place. Chris is running against Republican, who's, I think, one of Trump's number one fundraisers. So in terms of what's going on here in the state politically, it's really exciting. And I know we're going to talk about housing. Um, that's a really big issue in the state. There there's um, tons of people moving to the Seattle area for jobs, and it's the, that metropolitan area is expanding rapidly. I mean, population growth, construction, and then that's impacting Tacoma a lot. Tacoma, where I live, actually has one of the fastest rising rates of rent in the country. 
when I like think about housing, I think not just about like the material policy, but like our attitudes towards housing, because I feel like whenever we talk about a policy, it comes from like deep seated attitudes that have been planted by the media and kind of spread by the media. Rachel, weren't you on Twitter we today were... talking about? Yeah. So, okay. I was at a car dealership like with my mom. She had bought a new car kind of a while ago. This is like 10 years ago. She bought this car. And so while I'm sitting in the, uh, waiting room at this car dealership i noticed that hgtv is playing and i'm watching whatever fucking house remodeling show it is and i shit you not uh this guy is talking about how this house is a fucking mess and he says and i quote yeah it doesn't look like it has a job it looks like it hasn't bathed in like four or five days and so brandon and i started riffing on it and we're just like how are other ways we can compare a house to poor or to poor people like Yikes. Wow. This house looks like it, it's about to get kicked out of its house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Brandon got the best dumps on this one. You also said that, and you said the other one, too. The, the house looks like it uh, has to write a GoFundMe for the shed out back every six months. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, there's a lot of classism in how people think about housing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's amazing, too. Like, just the absolute transparency of it you know this idea that like not only is there you know a sort of entitlement to nice housing if you're wealthy but also that like if you are poor or if you're working class or if you're struggling or if you're disabled like oh you deserve to have a shitty house like you don't deserve safe places to live or nice places to live unless you're like rich enough it's just any place to live yeah, right. Or at all. You're in Washington. So what's like the discourse around houselessness just in your district and in your state? What gets under your skin? What really gets under my skin is when politicians talk about bringing all stakeholders to the table to talk about studying solutions. And what that uh, always means is bringing uh, not people who live in houses or people who don't live in houses because they're homeless. It's about bringing real estate developers to the table to talk about solutions that they want, which in Tacoma means uh, currently Tacoma is giving tax breaks to developers to bring to build unaffordable housing. and it's just, you know, housing for people who, if they can't get into this unit they're building, they're not going to end up homeless, they'll find something else. But we're giving tax breaks to developers to do that. And that's the result of this kind of bring all stakeholders to the table type of thinking. And it's really frustrating to me. Um, what also really gets under my skin is nobody really questions the idea of housing as like, housing's number one purpose is as an investment. When I believe housing's number one purpose is for people to live in, and there's that's never really questioned. And it's just, well, you know, how do we continue economic development and growth and make sure that all stakeholders get returns on their investments? And, you know, but the people sleeping in the park are the enemy. And, you know, Tacoma's recently started doing sweeps, and I'm involved with a group, the Tacoma Tenants Organizing Committee, that started when this uh, building called the Tiki Apartments was bought by a Seattle developer and he kicked everyone out, evicted everybody, tripled the rents. And then since since that eviction, two people who live there have died homeless. And that's because Jesus. Yeah. And they don't they don't talk about it this way. Like housing is life or death. And the people were yeah, living there yeah. because 
Like there's a lack of affordable housing. You can be on a wait list for affordable, accessible housing or for Section 8 housing for years. And the people who were living there, it was very poor conditions, but it was the only place they could find. And some of them because they had felonies and they, you know, people with felonies face discrimination where it's like they go to prison, they serve their time, they get out, and then they can't find a place to rent because of having the felony on their record or people with disabilities, people on fixed income. And uh, that was their one place that, you know, that was the last stop. And so, you know, bringing all stakeholders to the table, well, (laughs) two of the stakeholders are dead, so they can't be brought to the table. And that kind of stuff really frustrates me. Yeah. And I mean, I think the, the grimmest, most horrifying thing about it is like, and I was actually just on Street Fight talking with Brett and Brian about this. If you can't afford to buy the house outright, if you have to take out like a mortgage for it, you're not even actually saving money. It's like this weird, just cultural lie we've been telling each other that like, this is an investment. It's like, no, it's only an investment if you're already really rich. For everybody else, it's just the difference of like who you're paying to. Like, who are you swearing fealty to, you know? Let's just be clear that when, when, if you imagine like the worst smoke-filled room, dark money meeting, when people say, let's bring all the stakeholders to the table, that's just a euphemism for that. (laughs) That's all it is. (laughs) It it legitimately is. Like when people talk about like house flipping investments, if you buy a house, if I buy a house at $20,000 and I spend, you know, 10 grand on fixing it up and then I resell it for like 60. I am basically like destroying the ability of someone to purchase that house to live in it. I don't know we've touched on that but like the 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 speculation that's around houses is probably the number one thing that damages uh housing as a livable as an actual thing that can support people's lives. Well, you know, it's interesting you bring up flipping in particular, because uh, right before the 2008 bubble burst, there was actually a huge amount of mortgage fraud happening and predatory lending happening around that. Uh, And it was because people were literally doing like quick sales and short sales just to artificially inflate the cost of a house by, you know, $100,000, $150,000 in a single day. Like it was not like they were even making any investments into these properties. They were just milking money from the bank basically and just foisting it on people who had bought these houses. But it was such an endemic thing that when the market crashed in 2008, that played a huge role in it. And we see people have like basically learned nothing. They're still trying to buy these things, put like $7 into a fresh coat of paint and sell it for $150,000 more as though it's not going to immediately crash again. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just kind of these putting frosting on the cake, which itself is just rotten. I mean, like we have a system where, yeah, you just flip as many houses as possible and make your investment. You know, a lot of people look at buying real estate as, you know, their nest egg for retirement. And I mean, that's fine. Like if you, if you have money to spend, like, let's say you have like $500,000 or a million dollars or something, and you want to secure a comfortable retirement for yourself, like buy one or two rental homes. But I don't think that real estate should be looked at as this high stakes, high risk, high reward field of investing. If you want to do that type of stuff, you can buy penny stocks or you can go into the stock market. And then if you want to buy even within 
precious metals. Like you can buy uh, within precious metals, gold, rare coins, et cetera. Like there's um, varying levels of that. You can buy stuff that's high risk where you can buy stuff where you just kind of hold your equity and, and make sure it doesn't disappear in the stock market. Like I don't think that real estate should be treated as one of the avenues for making as much money as possible as quickly as possible. And the fact that, you know, people are thinking, well, you know, social security and Medicare might not be around when I am older and ready to retire. That's why I need to invest in real estate. And like many of those mom and pop landlords aren't the ones, you know, gouging people. They, they're they just doing it to try to secure retirement for themselves. But that points to another problem. Like, why do we have a society where people are worried that they're going to retire penniless? And so they have to buy property to try to get by in their retirement. You know, if we had all these progressive policies that, you know, myself and many other progressives are fighting for, where you can retire with dignity, you always have health care, you always get paid a living wage, you're not given benefits based on, you know, your economic output during your life. Like, right. this is how much economic output you created during your life. And so that's how valuable of a human being you are. And that's how um, that will determine the rate of poverty that we let you live in when you retire. Like, that's not the way it should yeah. be. And if it weren't that way, then probably a lot of people wouldn't um, feel the need to invest in real estate. That Those are the mom and pops, but then there are people who are just kind of aggressively flipping, like you said, and throwing on a coat of paint. And yeah, we really have learned nothing. And I don't think the underlying approach has changed at all. Well, and I think people's instinct, uh, you know, a lot of times when we talk about like mortgage fraud, right, people are thinking like fraud for housing. And that's just not what it is. That's not really where the problem lies. People are not fudging the numbers about how much house they can afford. Really, people are just overtly lying and overtly ripping off home buyers so that they can squeeze out an extra $10,000 from a home sale. Yeah. But of course, nobody wants to talk about that because then you have to blame rich people and we have, you know, a cultural block on ever doing that. I read a story online about a guy who actually lived in Upper Queen Anne, and he had off-street parking, fireplace, single dad, he was paying $1,100 a month, which sounds like a lot for that kind of place in Atlanta, but in Seattle isn't that bad. And he actually rented from an old couple, and they sold the building to some real estate investors like a few years ago. And the first thing they did when they took over was they disabled the irrigation. So all of these plants that the tenants and the former landlords had like started to die and they jimmied the irrigation back open, but the, the rent just started to skyrocket with the new investors. So two years later, that guy's rent doubled. It was $2,000 a month. So it became like, and I think this is a choice a lot of people are facing, like, is it rent this month? Is it heat this month? Is it food this month? Because those monthly expenses like, never fully like dry up and they were in a situation where they and this is another thing that ties into housing everybody who doesn't have a house is not technically homeless like a lot of people are in situations where they are packed tight with roommates or they're couch surfing and things like that yeah definitely and that's there's the number i think it's on a given night two hundred thousand people who are homeless you know on the streets out in the elements and then there's many many more who are in a shelter or couch surfing or packed in somewhere or maybe even squatting yeah the numbers are really big it's kind of like you know aoc has been talking recently about how poverty is counted in this country and how many more people are actually in poverty than are counted and i think it's the same for homelessness and I think there's a narrative a lot of the time about 
how people get to homelessness and also a narrative about like why there are so many empty houses at the same time and that neither of these narratives are necessarily accurate and even when we're talking about stuff like investors using property as a way to make money that's not even the shadiest financial stuff that's going on these empty houses that are that aren't intended to be filled are more financially shady than any of that what kind of is the typical narrative of the situation that we're in versus the reality and then how do we combat getting people more people to see the reality it seems to me like a lot of people when they first see gentrification creeping into their neighborhoods respond with excitement you know people have not yet tied the process of gentrification to the first couple of like cooler nice restaurants coming into the neighborhood people haven't realized like oh they're building new apartments means they're building apartments i won't be able to afford but that will drive up the cost of housing on the housing i already have you know and i, I think one thing we can do about the narrative is to work really hard on tying those two together in people's awareness that people coming in and developing your neighborhood from the outside is probably always a bad thing. And the only real sustainable growth really needs to be coming from within the community and not from investing oligarchs. Yeah, definitely. And I think one one thing that a uh community group in Tacoma is doing, they're called Hilltop Urban Gardens, and they actually, their focus up till now has been on building edible food gardens in uh, the Hilltop neighborhood of Tacoma, which is a majority minority neighborhood, a food desert in many places, very underserved, underinvested in, not a lot of city resources go there. And so they've been doing this for a long time. And um, I haven't talked to them in a while about it, but last I heard maybe about six months ago, they were starting a community land trust. And I think that's one way that something communities can do, like let's get together, raise the money and buy some land and have it stay, you know, controlled, owned and lived on by the community. And in terms of changing the narrative, I think just some some things, it, it almost like it, it seems so obvious, but nobody ever talks about it. And maybe just bring those things up like, well, a house, right, is a uh, what is a house for? And somebody will probably say for living in, right? Then what is it currently? What are they currently being used for? What are those empty houses being used for? That kind of thing where we kind of just start to question the assumptions like, well, of course you buy and flip houses and try to make as much money as possible. And I think also just talking about the human impact, many people just don't realize that housing is a life or death issue. They've never been in the situation or they never have known anybody who has been in the situation. But if you tell them like, hey, after that apartment building in Tacoma was bought, um, two people died. Uh, and people die homeless on the streets all the time. Um, and it really is life or death. I think that's one way as well to just have it hit home and show how important it is. I have a I have a story a little bit about about gentrification. Ironically enough, weirdly enough, uh, Rachel, you mentioned people just being excited at first, and oh my God, that was a hundred percent what the vibe was in West Atlanta. Uh, as soon as they like started some new construction, as soon as a couple of businesses moved in, everybody was like, "Finally, it's gonna stop being shit around here." Like <laughs> if, if we had if we had held like a ticker tape parade for the first gentrifiers in West Atlanta, it would have been a successful parade. I don't know whether they would have packed the streets, but like whenever you went to like a barbershop or church, you talked about like, oh, you hear they're making a new such and such down here, especially because for older people, that stuff existed during the late 80s and then went away during the 90s. And also for people who are a lot older, and I don't know whether this is the experience so much in Washington state, but pre-integration, there were so many black owned businesses that there was like 
kind of a level of professionalism in terms of the services that you got and things went out of the community and went back into the community. And it really wasn't until integration that like that land kind of became a commodity and like black dollars just kind of, first of all, left that community. And also the stuff that was coming in when someone made a purchase, like it was the money wasn't staying there at all. I don't think that there's been like a, I think there's more political awareness about gentrification now, but it was definitely a situation where those places, people aren't getting kicked out so much in, in my part of town because it's an older generation and they own that that land, but it's happening really slowly over like a 10 year period. And that new construction, nobody's moving in, it's empty. Like the people who are being targeted for those houses, they don't wanna live there because like you need a, a certain critical mass before that. Yeah, and like, God forbid a rich white person in near black people. Yeah, why The only you? thing that they're more afraid of than socialism. No, it, it's infuriating. Yeah. And I, like West Midtown now used to be like a bunch of industrial like buildings and like warehouses and stuff. And then it's like white people have just been slowly creeping westward for the last like 15 years now. And it's completely unrecognizable. Like it's bonkers and it's infuriating and it also seems like now might be a good time to uh you were talking about like the dissolution of like black wall street when integration happened it seems like it would be a good time to just sort of mention that there's a website called shop black and you can just like actively spend money with black businesses time plug yeah i'm gonna I, like they don't pay us or anything that's just a thing that people should know yeah this is why we have you on the show for things like this for weird <laughs> random wokeness no, exactly yeah wait you know <laughs> We should actually talk, I think this is a good segue, because when we talk about like solutions for this, public housing will be one of the solutions that we think about. And um, I think that across the ideological spectrum, everybody hates public housing. I think that there's been like a media campaign to get you to hate public housing. Yeah, it's incredibly maligned. Right. They've also deliberately starved public housing and made efforts to like right. make it shitty to live make there. It shitty as possible. Like uh, you hear that woman recently who got evicted because somebody saw her smoke cigarette or something that's been going around the outrage circuit so can we talk about like why do we dislike public housing so much and like what can be done to improve the perception of public housing i feel like we're this is gonna sound so you're funny. asking how to convince america to stop hating poor people like <laughs> if i had the answer to that question we would already have a socialist <laughs> government yeah, well Rebecca's day job she's supposed to be putting a few chips in this block so we're asking her <laughs> well, I think, yeah, there has been a public relations campaign against providing mo any money in any form to poor people, whether it's uh, food stamps or public housing or, um, you know, just draining public schools of their resources. And also, like Rachel said, it has been defunded. And so when you don't have the funding, places can't be kept up. Um, public housing it tends to be very unsafe and very bad conditions, mold, all kinds of stuff. And I think that one way to address this is, well, first of all, like put funding back in so that public housing can be renovated and kept up to date and not just kept up to date, but be nice housing that people actually want to live in. And also as part of the Green New Deal is retrofitting housing across the country to be green because housing is a major contributor to uh, climate change along with transportation. 
Mm-hmm. And something else as well is like, if you put like public housing and that's just this one part of town and that's where we just put the poor people. If instead you build uh, social housing, which includes different income levels within. So you might have a building and 20% is for you know the lowest income range, 20% is for the highest. And you know, to live in that building, you pay what you can according to your income. And then you start having a mixed income and you're not just um, segregating people into these areas. And I, I think it's great social housing, like a social social approach to housing. And there's so many other parallel models, like something they do in Germany in some places is they'll have like a a house, for example, and it has room for, it has 10 rooms, like a very big house and a kitchen, 10 rooms, and then they'll kind of mix it up. So there'll be a couple seniors living there, a couple college students, and like one or two families with kids. And they all live together there together, it's subsidized. And so then you don't put senior citizens off by themselves into retirement communities. Um, You don't put, you know, poor people off by themselves and have this kind of segmented off society where we're all just in our little capsules. And we don't don't interact with each other. I think a more mixed approach to um, like income levels, age levels, people living together. So what would distinguish that from the loathed and appropriately loathed means testing strategy? I think it would be everybody is is guaranteed housing and you're not cut off if you're just above or below a certain threshold. And so if you like to live in that building, pay nothing, then maybe you would pay nothing. Does that answer the question? I think so. I mean, it's just, I know for some people that might sound similar. And I think Mm -hmm. it's very useful to describe the differences here. You know, this is not like you're saying about whether you make more or less than the poverty line that hasn't been updated in 25 years, right? It's about everybody has this sort of same opportunity to live in this place under the same rules and conditions. It's just structured in a way to support different groups differently. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So long as I don't have to live with my mother in law. (laughs) (laughs) Rachel, there's actually going to be a a government ordered libertarian to live next door to you. Fuck, I would kill him. I'd kill them. God, I would literally like I would But that violates the non aggression pact, Rachel. (laughs) No, being a libertarian in my presence is an act of aggression. Sacrifices have to be made for progress. Rest in peace. You know, actually, uh, a thing I would really like to see, and Rebecca, you loosely mentioned this, but uh, I think you're probably picking up very quickly that I'm the bad kid of the pod. I would love to see people (laughs) doing more uh, protest squatting. You know, there are a couple organizations in France and uh, in Italy that specifically do this. They will actively occupy empty houses and just live there as an act of protest. And then, you know, if you want to kick them out, you have to spend all of the money to kick them out. And if you just keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it, it stops being so profitable. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that obviously requires having some squatters rights, which not all places do, but I would love to see more of that. Yeah, I mean, this, uh, (laughs) yeah, I know there's, um, I've actually known somebody who squatted in Tacoma and uh, not as a, he just couldn't find anywhere else. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think that would be a great statement to show just the absurdity of having this uh, empty housing. Right, because who benefits from those empty houses? Again, it's this whole market system that allows you know, empty housing to put pressure on the whole market and basically screw all of us who just need a, a place to live. And, you know, our landlords are looking at, well, there's all these empty apartments that cost blank, blank, blank. So I should be able to rent mine for at least half that. And, you know, you're just living in squalor, paying top dollar. 
I didn't mean to run. Oh. Damn. Uh, <laughs> that was a good one. Oh, <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit, though, about who public housing benefits the most and what it could do to help with discrimination, if possible. Because I think especially some of these groups that public housing would benefit the most are, are people that the conservatives are constantly harping about, like veterans, children. So how can we how can we like help with discrimination towards a lot of different groups and what groups might be helped the most by this? Especially in relation to transportation, you know, where you where you live and where you can get to has a lot to do with like your access to resources and your job and a lot of stuff. Yeah, I think it, it is funny. It's exactly, you know, many of the groups that conservatives talk about who would help. And actually, it reminded me of something that Marianne Williamson said once, which was there's so little focus on children in public policy because they can't vote and they can't donate. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> for me, like children and you know children in poverty, children who are experiencing homelessness, children who are in crumbling schools, like that's one of the things that I care the most about. And they are like the voiceless in terms of our politics. Like um, they're not going to be, you know, your donors. Um, so I think firstly, you know, more public housing or social housing would really benefit children. It would also benefit veterans, seniors, people of color, like all the people who are disproportionately impacted by our for-profit capitalist housing system would benefit, I believe, from more public housing and from real investment in it. And um, one of the problems with housing policy is that it's extremely localized in, in the country, in our country, like where the money comes from, the solutions, everything is hyper-localized. And the problem mm -hmm. with making it come from the budget of, you know, the city of Tacoma or the state of Washington or the city of Atlanta or whatever is their funds are limited. But the federal government, when it sets a priority, it creates the money to fund the priority. So for example, how did we go from the Great Depression where nobody had any money into World World War II, where we manufactured all these planes, we sent millions of soldiers overseas, like there was literally no money to tax because everybody was poor. And the answer is that the government decided that funding this war was a priority and spent the money into existence. And it did the same thing with the Wall Street bailout didn't go up a ton because it wasn't funded by tax money. You know, the government literally, and there was a chair of the Fed who said this on in a congressional hearing to Paul Ryan once where it was like, yeah, you know, the government sets a priority or Congress sets a priority. And then the Fed and the Treasury implement it financially. So they go in, it's a literally computer system. You go in and like add a zero to Wells Fargo's account or whatever. And that money has been spent into existence. And we can do the same thing with housing if we decide it's a priority and have, you know, federal funding with uh, stipulations, but then local control. So, you know, what works in Tacoma might be different from what would work in Seattle or Portland, Oregon or wherever. But so that, you know, localities can come up with the solutions that are best for them, but they can actually have the funding they need because right now, like the result of having it be so localized is like we've got this limited budget and we've got this, you know, pie and there's only so many slices. And if, if we don't spend money on enticing developers to build expensive housing here, they'll go somewhere else and that'll um, impact everybody. Or if we um, do rent control here, then rent control will go up just outside the state or city limits. But if we have a national approach, like national rent control, national funding, then finally, you know, cities and states and towns will have the funds they need to do all of this and not have it be such like a bitter turf battle. Are there any uh, national candidates that you know of that are supporting a national rent control policy, like congressional candidates or anything like that? I think there was one in New York. Last time I looked for it, one 
somebody running in New York City who had national rent control on his platform. And then I think after the Homes Guarantee came out that a bunch of candidates um, started talking about it, but not many people have it as a focus. And as far as I know, I've been, you know, researched for, from when I announced in July, I was one of the first in the country, aside from that candidate in New York, and I can't remember his name now, but who were calling for national rent control. And then uh, the Homes Guarantee came out and Bernie Sanders... And I think AOC and Ilhan Omar as well are all calling for national rent control. Oh, so you are one of those people. Wow. Interesting. It's cool that we've got one of those people on the on the show. <laughs> <laughs> what a coincidence. Yeah, like national rent control is so exciting to me because, um, well, currently rent control is banned in the state of Washington. That's something that housing uh, organizers are fighting right now is uh, first we want just cause, which means you, if a landlord evicts somebody, they have to have a, a just reason for it again, just because they don't like you or they're discriminating. Um, and then the next thing after that is trying to lift the ban on rent control. But, you know, the, the housing policy is such a patchwork, you know, it might be, I don't know, there's some cities in California that have it. I think they did it in New York. You know, one of the conservative arguments against uh, rent control as well, if you implemented it in this one place, then rents go up just outside. I'm like, okay, um, if we have a leaky bucket, that doesn't mean buckets are shit. We just have to plug the hole and have national rent control in the entire country. <laughs> so uh, I love national, like the idea of control. And we've had it before. We had it during World War II. We also had it under Nixon. He implemented price controls on housing for about six weeks. Um, some people think it's an election ploy to make himself popular. It was very popular. So <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds kind of radical, but we've had it before. It's legal, it's constitutional. And um, people like the Homes Guarantee Coalition are working on it. Could we talk a little bit about, like you kind of touched on this earlier when you talked about people coming out of prison with a felony and they've already served their time in many cases they were sentenced to a really long sentence and they had to appeal to get out which means the court has decided that this person is okay to go back out into society but they still have this mark on their record that makes it almost impossible for them to do anything that's one of the most obvious examples of how people get discriminated against via poverty uh, away from owning houses or, or renting houses. But there's a lot more insidious methods too, like the way that credit works, um, the way that credit unfairly treats people who say live from paycheck to paycheck and just sometimes have to pay a bill a couple days late. And these systems prevent people from buying houses in places where a lot of times in their community mortgages are less than rent. So how do we like address all of these little issues where people are being like nickel and dimed out of home ownership or even a good rental? I think there need to be national standards on non-discrimination for housing. I mean, the <clears throat> issue of people who have felonies on the record great example because you know what is incarceration really about you know because if you look at the conservative viewpoint like well you you did you um, committed a crime you have to serve your time and be rehabilitated or whatever well first of all i know a lot of people who are just out and about free in society who need to be rehabilitated um and uh, <laughs> aside from that i think it's a very weird patronizing way to think about it but um then secondly like why continue to punish them when they get out and i think it's part of the conservative mindset like if you're not rich, white, straight, male, Christian, like you're a failure somehow. And we need to just continue to punish, punish, punish. But if the goal is to actually reduce crime, why make people's lives impossible when they get out? If they, you know, 
they can't get a job, they can't get a place to live. That just makes it more likely that they uh, will not be able to get, you know, a legal job. They may have to get an illegal job, an illegal way of making money. And so if what we want is really to reduce crime and truly like, quote unquote, rehabilitate people, we should let them get housing. I don't know, to me, it's just it's really unfair. I saw something recently that somebody, I think it was a prison guard or somebody said that like um, for the prison use at a lot of people watch the debates very closely because it impacts them. And I think Bernie Sanders is the only person who has said that everybody, no matter who should be able to vote in prison, out of prison. And yeah, this kind of like continued punishing of people for committing a crime, it, it doesn't really allow for this true, you know, quote unquote, rehabilitation. And that kind of punishment also extends to uh, people who have been evicted in the past. I know that in Atlanta, about 20% of people in my county have had evictions. And if you are like applying for a new place, your like management company or your landlord, they can look and like see if you've been evicted before in the past. So they literally just won't put you on. Like they literally won't take you on if you've had an eviction. And I know this ties into what you already said about national standards, but most places in, in this city, you've got to uh, have like a paperwork that shows you're making three times more than whatever the rent is anyway. And that number goes up like based on sometimes arbitrary circumstances. Yeah. And that makes it tricky as well. Like I'm self-employed and people who are self-employed are viewed with a little more suspicion because it's like your income, they view it as less reliable. Um, so it can make it really hard to, to find a place as well. Yeah. I was in that exact same boat. I know we're both in advertising and I, I definitely have been in situations where how much do you make? Well, it's complicated. This month I made this. Next month I might make this. I didn't make anything last month. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and I think it's particularly necessary to push back on that one because at this point, pretty much everybody under 40 is at the most a contractor. Like I, I know a handful of people who have full-time jobs as such so true like everybody i know is on a contract and they can be terminated pretty much whenever we don't have protections for those you know we don't have any kind of assurance that they're going to renew our contract that's in three months they might they've done it the last couple of times but will they do it again who knows right when we talk about why don't millennials buy houses i mean there you go like among the many other reasons like who would even sell to us under the current system if we did have money which we don't yeah. Oh my gosh. It's even harder buying a house self-employed or contractor. I mean, yeah. You basically have to be able to pay for it in cash. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the boomers are like, back in my day, I bought a house for $50. I'm like, oh my God. Right. <laughs> uh, I don't, yeah. You know, Uber drivers make $50 a week or whatever. I bought so. my first house for a stick of gum and a hand job. Like, thanks. Great, <laughs> Debbie. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Bob. Right. Yeah, no, it's ridiculous. And the, it's like every single aspect of this home ownership system has gotten worse since then. You know, like all the laws have gotten worse. All of the contracts have gotten worse. All of the rates have gotten worse. You know, every price is more inflated. It's just silly to act like, you know, we don't need some kind of major change when the federal government itself is taking ownership of the fact that homelessness has not improved in two decades or more like at all so you know we have to do something serious to turn this shit around basically and if some of the things that rebecca has said sound like a little extreme to you like you need to start thinking about how extreme the problem is 
And also, I would be remiss as the radical socialist on board if I didn't mention that tenant organizing is a thing, tenant unions are a thing, and as with all cases where our overlords own something we need to live, they need us more than we need them. And if we all collectively just refuse to pay rent one month, they're going to do what we say. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I like tenants unions, I think are such an exciting idea. And I think they do that already in Sweden. And it's part of the homes guarantee is uh, like the right to organize and renters being able to form tenants unions free from fear of retaliation and organize like and that that would be so exciting. Um, yeah, I love the idea of of renters organizing together and using our collective power. Yeah, it would be incredible. That's very well said. Listen, it's been, Kennedy, do you, do you feel like we, is there anything else on your mind? I think we touched on all the major topics we really wanted to hit today. This has been a really good conversation about a really important issue. Rebecca, remind our audience where they go online to get involved with your campaign right now and just learn more about you. Yeah, you can go to my website, RebeccaForWA.com, R-E-B-E-C-C-A-F-O-R-W-A.com. And I have the same uh, handle, RebeccaForWA, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even TikTok. So check me out on those places. Are you on TikTok? Are you doing TikTok stuff now? Um, yeah, I'm on TikTok. Um, and it's, yeah, you have to check out my one video and let me know if it's any good or if I'm just like basically a boomer on there. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, Rebecca for WA on all the platforms. We've gone from like working poor to working homeless and it sucks. So uh, electing people with a broader perspective on this and are not uh, as propagandized as our previous generation of lawmakers would be a great idea. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Um, Rebecca, thank you so much again for coming back to the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. It was really great talking to you all. Absolutely. We'll look forward to talking with you again, I am sure. Thank you. <laughs> and we first connected through Orb Twitter, so y'all have a special place in my heart. Oh, we yeah. feel the same way. <laughs> <laughs> and we know our fans will appreciate it as well. Fans, thank you so much for listening as always. If you don't already follow us on Twitter, we are at NSFWonks. And also, our Patreon is patreon.com slash notsafe. And if you love the show, if you want the show to keep happening, keep improving, keep getting amazing guests like this, you know, think about heading on over to the Patreon and seeing what you can do for us because it really helps out. The show costs us money every month. And with that, let's sign off. I'm Kennedy Cooper at Kennedy T. Cooper on Twitter. I'm Rachel Kahn at Reach Rachel Kahn on Twitter. And I'm Brandon Buchanan at Brandon Buchanan on Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Goodbye. Bye. Bye-bye.